Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Interventional Endoscopist Podcast. I'm your host, Munkavl Suchdev. It's been a little while since I've posted or done a podcast, primarily because I was just taking a break and, you know, with the kids in school year starting, etc., just decided it was a good time to basically make a de facto season two. Um, today, <clears throat> I'm going to talk a little bit along a theme that I've spoken about before, um, I've put several um, other podcasts about uh, job searching um, for for fellows. So I kind of want to talk about how a fellow, whether you're a third year fellow or an interventional fellow, should go about navigating the your first job and how to choose it. And so I think what I really want to do and talk about is kind of just break down the different kind of job options that are there. I remember when I was both a general and an interventional fellow, I didn't really understand all the nuances and the different things. You know, I think a lot of us, when we're in training, we are at least historically have been taught that going into private practice is a bad thing and you're a sellout, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I'm hopeful that things are changing now because I do feel like the burdens, uh, I'm mean, sorry, the... Uh, um, Margins are being uh, blurred, and uh, yeah, I was just trying to have a little faux pas there, trying to say margins and blur at the same time. It came up with burden, but anyway. Um, so, <clears throat> I think the timeline for any uh, fellow who wants to uh, start looking for a job, um, or any graduating fellow, whether that be third, fourth, or you know any other type of fellow, is is right now. It's actually October, November, and um, you know. Just start looking around at this point in time. Start, um, you know, getting your CV together. Um, you, you should have two CVs, basically a long CV, which comes in handier for when you're applying for academic jobs. Uh, one that might talk about all your abstracts and posters and that kind of thing. Um, and a short one, a resume, basically a one or two pager that a lot of headhunters or practices are looking for. Also, uh, letters of recommendation. Uh, you know, in the job world, you don't really need a letter per se, but you probably need to have people who are willing to go on record and talk about you in a good way. And I'm definitely sure that anybody who's a fellow at this point in time can find that person. Um, places to look for fellowship or for jobs. Um, you know, I actually think Doximity has a really nice uh, career finder, and I can put a link to that if anybody needs it in, in the description. Um, all the societies uh, have links to job uh, application websites. And then, of course, word of mouth. You know, talk to people uh, in the area that you want to go to and see what's available and who's looking, etc. Um, know yourself. That's, that's another thing that I think is really important. Uh, I've talked about this in another podcast, but you have to be honest with yourself about what you want to do. If you're not an academic person, you're not an academic person. If you're not a private practice person, that's not what you are. Be who you are, know what you want, and go for it. Another hint uh, that I like to harp on is the phone number and email issue. Um, If you listen to previous podcasts, you know I'm a big advocate for um, burner phones. So go to Google Voice, get yourself a new phone number that you only use for job applications and get a new email address 
for example, M such Dave job or M such Dave 74, you know, and, and get that and um, use those. Reason being, the last time I entered a job fair was 2008. It was at, I believe it was ACG. I put my name up on the bulletin board and whatnot. To this day, I still get phone calls from recruiters asking me if I want a job. So what I did was when I was a fellow in Memphis, I had a local number there. And when I moved back home to Phoenix and got a job here, I basically got a local number on Google Voice and then I swapped them out. So my Memphis number is my Google Voice number. It's, you know, something that I don't check very often. I use it to screen calls. Um, I use it for everything for job related. If, you know, I'm looking for a locums opportunity or something like that, I only use that number. And then obviously if I go to the grocery store or car dealership or something like that, I use that number for every kind of thing that I don't want to ever answer the phone for. So, you know, rewards programs, etc. So do that and do yourself a favor, save you a lot of trouble five or 10 years down the road. Some key terms that you should know as a person looking for a job, <coughs> RVUs, relative value units, CPT, current procedural terminology, ASC, Ambulatory Surgical Center, and the word buy-in. Basically, what are you going to have to spend to become a partner? Those terms are something that you should familiarize yourself with. <coughs> RVU is especially important because more and more practices and um, hospital-employed situations are paying gastroenterologists on the RVU model. An RVU, <coughs> excuse me, relative, or relative value unit is a fee that Medicare sets forth about what something will cost. And then there's a component of an RVU called the WRVU or a work RVU, and that is the money that would be allotted to a physician. That number varies from practice to practice or situation to situation. It's important because the number of RVUs you get for the procedure you do are set. So just for example, and, and I didn't look this up, but I believe like a diagnostic EGD pays a physician four point something RVUs. If you're getting $50 in RVU, that means you are getting paid $200 for that procedure. Um, so the dollar amount can change on the practice, but the actual RVU component, the number of RVUs assigned to the procedure you do or hospital visit or patient visit is going to be the same. So something that you just want to kind of know about um, as you head into the job search. Um, now, the most important thing about this podcast, and we're finally getting to it, or I'm finally getting to it, is practice models. As I can see it, I count out four varieties of practice situations in America. Clinical educator or clinician educator, i.e. academics, private practice, everybody knows what that is, we'll talk about it, hospital-employed situation or hospital-employed, hospital-owned practice, and then private equity practices, which is kind of the hot topic these days. And personally, I was in private practice, and a few years ago we sold our practice to a private equity, so now I am in the final category. I have some feelings about it, some some opinions about it, but I think um, as we kind of go through this, it'll be a little bit more 
clear as to you know the, what what these things are so that as you're looking for your job you'll be able to kind of see what situation suits you the best the clinician educator is academic medicine it's a popular choice prior to training and during training uh, there are different models of clinical educators that, and, and different ways that you can and get into that. But it's a very popular choice, and it's what most people coming out of medical school or out of their residencies think they're going to do. If I had a dollar for every fellow that ever told me they wanted to go into academics, I'd be very wealthy. The reality is I think that 80 to 90% of applicants, fellows, residents, whatever situation, say they want to go into academics. But the reality is that only 10 or 20% go in, in, in my opinion. Again, I don't have the data to support that, but if you look at the job market and you see what is available and what's out there in the world, there are many more private practitioners in the U.S. than there are academic physicians. So it stands to reason that even though everybody kind of goes into it with the idea of being an academic physician, they, a lot of people don't want to do that. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with either option. When you talk about academics per se, you look at, in my opinion, three different types of physicians. Uh, you look at people who are educators. You, you really are a clinician first and, and you're an educator, so you're that attending you teach fellows, you know, about different disease processes in clinic. You, you teach them how to do procedures. And I think that's what most people th think that academics is when they're, when they're getting into um, uh, the job market. That's what most people envision as an academic position. Certainly for me, uh, when I was looking and I was considering academics, I wanted to be a clinical educator. I'm not, to be honest with you, a great researcher, and I, I don't know if I have the skill set to be somebody who can throw out, you know, 20 meta-analyses in a two-year period and things like that. That's just not who I am. But I, I feel like I'm a pretty good teacher. So for me, that that's what academics was. But you can also be a researcher. And you can be a physician investigator. So, and those are very similar, but a researcher would be more of a basic science person, and a physician investigator would be somebody like a lot of the people that are uh, publishing these days. A physician scientist is, uh, or a physician uh, researcher is often times, you know, an MD, maybe an MD, PhD. Uh, most of the time is going to be focused on clinical research or any kind of research. It could be lab research. When I was in Memphis, we had several attendings who were uh, more in the lab than they were uh, in the endo unit. You know, so and I'm, when I mean when I say lab, I mean you know, the lab that looks at cells and mice and things like that. Um, they don't have a lot of clinical time. It's more basic science, and most likely, uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you're somebody who enjoys interventional endoscopy, you're most likely not going that route. But there are always exceptions to the rules. When you talk about a physician investigator, this is somebody who does clinical and research and you know, time division of that can vary. You, you could be 50-50, you could be 20-80, you know, in either direction. Your research is typically clinically focused. It's not going to be somebody who's doing basic science research. And you can be funded by your institution or you can be funded by a pharma. And you educate, you mentor residents and fellows, and 
and, and you do that. And that's, that's a, a lot of people enjoy doing that. And that's really a great way to uh, spend your career if that's what you like. Um, and then again, the earlier when I was talking about clinician educator, primary focus is on clinical care, educating trainees, balance of clinic and endoscopy. You can vary, you know, some institutions will give you two teaching days a week or one teaching week a month or something like that. Again, different everywhere you go. And you can research and do research in clinical areas of interest to you. And a lot of times your research is going to be mentoring residents and fellows on case reports and case series, etc. And again, this is what I thought of when I considered academics as a career. Um, but, you know, again, as you can see, there's a lot of different ways to get involved in academia. Um, Salaries in the academic world historically were on the lower end, but I believe that that gap is improving. Generally, uh, you're either going to be on a fixed salary or you're going to be on an RVU model. The disadvantage of being on an RVU model in an academic center is that sometimes when you're a clinical educator, clinician educator or you're a researcher, you're not generating clinical volume to get those RVUs. So a lot of times these institutions will offset that with stipends. So for example, you could get a dollar amount for teaching. You could also get a dollar amount per fellow that you mentor. Um, and sometimes those are large dollar amounts and sometimes they're small. Varies, just have to look into that. But uh, historically, academic jobs paid the least. But I think that that is changing quite a bit, especially as you know, people are doing a little bit more clinical work than your traditional sitting in the lab and doing research. If you are in a lab and you're funded by pharma or you're funded by the institution, a lot of your salary can come from there. And if you're a tenured uh, like professor, et cetera, um, your money can uh, be guaranteed on some of the endowments and things like that. So it's something um, that you know, gets a lot of support there. Now, private practice, this is what I initially went into. Generally speaking, it's going to be a group practice that is one subspecialty. I, in this situation, we're talking about GI, of course. Uh, in the group, you're able to get all the benefits that you would with any employed position, or physician. When you're, um, when you're a group, you can go negotiate and get an insurance plan for all of the uh, partners and associates. You can get... Um, you can get healthcare, disability, malpractice, you can do all those things. There's a lot of cost sharing that goes into private practice, especially when it's a multi-specialty group. Um, and your compensation can come from two major arms, your clinical revenues, uh, which most private practices are not paying themselves on an RV model. They're doing what is crudely called eat what you kill. You see a patient, you bill for those services, you get paid for that. You, know, you collect it from the insurance company and then you get paid out of that after your overhead is taken out. So that's another term that a lot of fellows uh, may not be familiar with. Overhead is the cost that is associated with running a private practice or a practice. Um, generally, except for your first couple of years in private practice when you're employed by the group, there really isn't a guaranteed salary. So after my first year of practice when I became a partner in the practice, um, I didn't have a guaranteed salary. If I didn't work, um, if I took too much time off, I didn't make any money. If I go on vacation, I'm paying for vacation, but I'm also paying for it by not earning. So, you know, that, that is a downside of it, that you don't generally have 
uh, a guaranteed salary. And then your second uh, compensation situation come from ancillary revenues. Ancillary revenues are um, monies that the practice earns or collects for other services. So if you have a lab in your office that does blood draws, whatever those fees are associated with it, that could be a business arm that generates money and salary for the uh, owners of the practice. If you have an ambulatory surgical center, that's another revenue area. If your private practice owns a pathology lab or an anesthesia group or partners with one of those and there's revenues or you guys have a nice hospital contract, that money can be a source of um, uh, revenue for you as well. Um, you can, you're, if you join a private practice, that practice can own an ambulatory surgical center. Um, there has to be a lot of clarity in how it's set up because you have to make sure that it's compliant with all the legalities out there, the Stark Law, etc. You know, you, you have to own it. You have to make sure that you're not uh, self-referring. And, and there's a lot of ways that people structure these things so that they avoid being afoul of the law. Um, when you have an ASE, you can own it as a group. You can also have a joint venture or JV. That's another term you might hear. A joint venture usually means that there's a partner, um, strategic partner. So a large company, there's one called Amsurge. There's another one called Physicians Endoscopy. There's a third one called USPI. There's many of these national companies that will work with local physicians to develop and build an ambulatory surgical center, but they will generally own a, a share of that. They might own 50%. They might own a little more, a little less, but they go in with you as your practice and help you fund it and build it, and they usually have you know, all the blueprints and plans so you don't have to go reinvent that. When you are a associate, that's another term that you need to know. There's a difference in a private practice between a partner, which is a partial owner, and an associate who's basically an employee on the track to become a partnership. When you're an associate, you can buy into a practice and every practice has different formulas for how you're going to buy in. You can base it off the revenues, you can base it off of whatever arbitrary, arbitrary thing they want to do. Obviously, you know, most practices are going to run these by a legal counsel to make sure that they're not doing anything that's illegal. But <clears throat> a buy-in is going to be a must if you want to become a partner for most practices. And then when you're owning in an ASC, you have to buy into that, but you get paid um, profits as the company does better, you get paid. And then if you ever retire or leave or move on, you can quote unquote buy out. Now, not every private practice does it that way. I've, I've actually met several folks in other parts of the country where they don't have a buy-in, or but they also don't have a buyout. So you become a partner with what they call sweat equity, another term, that you put time and effort into the practice. And um, if you do a good job and you, you know, you're a good citizen and you're holding your end of the bargain and you're you know, seeing patients, et cetera, well, you've basically earned the right to become a partner. And since there's no buy-in, there will be no buy-out. And so th those, are, those are different ways of approaching it. And again, no right answer, no wrong answer. Um, ancillary revenues, as I mentioned earlier, there can be pathology labs which, and anesthesia groups, but you also have to buy into those as well. Some other examples of ancillary revenues that many practices may have are infusion centers. For practices that do a lot of IBD, they may decide to open a center that is able to give patients Remicade or some of these other infusions, iron infusions, etc. Um, almost kind of like an oncology practice, but 
obviously without chemotherapy. And that's an area that of ancillary revenue. Some practices own imaging centers. They own a CT scanner or an ultrasound. You know, and then some have actually small pharmacies in their office where they can dispense medications and things like that. So again, if you're looking for a job and these things are offered, it's great. You probably don't have to worry much about it. But if you're looking to actually create these things, there's a lot of legal issues in how you structure that. And if you get to that point in your career that you want to create these things, you need to consult with a good healthcare a business attorney or something like that so that, or, or a consulting group. Um, like there's a group out there called Mueller that did a really nice job of helping private practices get uh, started. So if you want to do something like that, you just have to make sure you're not doing anything illegal, breaking Stark, etc. So definitely very intriguing. Um, one of the most important things in private practice is fit. You know, you have to make sure that the people you're going to work with, you like working with them. You know, these guys are going to be, these people are folks that you're going to see every day. You probably see them more than you see your kids at times. Um, the work culture is extremely important. You have to be able to go to work and enjoy going to work. You have to like who you're working with. You have to enjoy the, the feel of the practice. And that, that goes with any job, but in private practice, it's a little bit more because these people that you work with are going to be helping you generate income for yourself. And if you have people who don't want to work hard or people who are not team players, it makes it a lot harder to be successful in private practice. Um, one thing that I thought was important is that if you do go to a private practice and you want to become a partner, what's your decision-making capacity? I, I feel it's important to be involved in large decisions in a, in a practice. Some people don't care, and that's, again, fine. But it is a business at the end of the day, and you're an owner of that business. So that business is successful if you're participating and successful in it. So that's something that you should look into as well. Um, in terms of ownership, what's your say? What, you know, not just with decision making, but in other matters, hiring and firing. Um, how about growth? Is it a group that wants to grow? Or are they very happy with their size? And again, what is your, do you want to, grow the practice with them or do you are you just happy walking into your practice and going with the status quo and the final thing that's really important is what is the relationship with local hospitals i think 10 years ago and again a lot of this is just my opinion but 10 or 15 years ago a lot of practices kind of drew lines in the sand where they said hey you know we don't need the hospitals we have our ambulatory surgical centers we're happy we forget the hospitals. Well, in the meantime, the hospitals needs coverage, and they have, weren't getting it from, in some cities, they're not getting it from private groups. So what do they do? They start employing their GI groups. As those GI groups start to mature, they don't need the uh, private practice guys because they have their own health plans, they have their own networks, and um, they can exclude people. So what's your relationship, what's your group's relationship with the hospital, and is it on good terms, and, and, and are you guys actual collaborative partners? And I think the successful private practice figures out how to collaboratively uh, partner with hospitals. And, and that's just something, in my opinion. Now, do you have to? No. I know of a group in Arizona that is extremely successful, and they don't have a strong relationship with any one hospital, and they're probably financially one of the most successful, successful groups I know of. But... Again, a lot of this is my opinion, but it's important to know what those situations are. The third type of practice is hospital-owned practice. This is basically you're employed by a hospital system or a hospital 
Um, and generally, smaller and medium-sized hospitals or systems do that. Um, your contract, you'll be contracted, you'll be on an RVU or a fixed salary, but most likely an RVU model. I touched on that earlier. Um, you may get paid a little bit based off of quality metrics. They may say that if your ADR is low, you get paid less, or if your ADR is high, you might get paid more. Again, I, I don't know of anybody who goes into a job and that's being offered there, but that might be a kicker for you to get a raise or something like that. Um, you, you may also get, you know, if you're employed by that hospital group, you're probably going to be required to do a certain number of days of call a month. But if you want to pick up more, you may be having an opportunity to get more money that way as well. Um, <clears throat> the endoscopy units are usually in the hospital. Sometimes they do have um, their own surgical centers that they own. On average, hospital endo centers are less efficient than uh, ASCs in terms of turnover and number of cases done and things like that. But again, keep that in mind, it's on average. And um, I know of several hospitals in the Phoenix area that have extremely efficient um, uh, endo units that are probably rival, rival private practice ASCs as well. Uh, but then I also know of several hospitals where you can only do five or six cases a day and that, that's it, you know. So it's just important to um, understand that as well. Um, and most hospital-employed practices historically haven't let their employees partner into ASCs that they own. However, that trend is changing and I'm seeing that pop up more and more and um, that's a really nice way to earn some extra money uh, as a bonus as well. Um, I think um, some of the pros of being hospital employed or hospital owned, you know, you don't have to worry about a lot of the administrative burden. That is something that in traditional private practice that you have to take on. Like I said earlier, it's a small business. So you're the manager and the owner of that business and your success depends on how well that business is being run. In a hospital employed practice situation, you've given that burden to somebody else. Um, and sometimes that's really good. Sometimes it's not that good. Uh, benefits for a hospital employee, you know, insurance, retirement, etc., tend to be better than what you can get as a private practice. Generally speaking, because you're paid on an RV model, you'll have a base, so you kind of can predict what you're going to be making month to month or quarter to quarter. That's important for a lot of people, especially if you're planning on paying back student loans and things, uh, things along of that nature. Um, some of the cons is that you, you will lose some of your autonomy. Uh, sometimes your administrator or your practice manager may not be a medical person or may not have a lot of medical background or they have the wrong medical background. A lot of times, you know, in large hospital systems, uh, administrators get promoted quite frequently because they're doing a good job in one field, but then they get thrown into a challenge. So maybe they're going from lab to GI, you know, and so that, that can be challenging because you may be working with somebody who doesn't know the basics. I have a colleague that I know who works for a local hospital system and they have a new practice administrator and he was asking her to help him calculate uh, or get data to show what his ADR was. And that person that is the administrator actually doesn't even know what an ADR is or how to get one or where to get it from. So. Again, extreme example, but just something that can happen. Um, there also may not be an opportunity to get 
any uh, ancillary revenues or increase. So a lot of times, you know, you're stuck on these uh, RVU models and you may not have a lot of ways to go up. The good news, though, is that a lot of hospital systems, when they do give you an RVU model, they will give you a base salary. And so you have that predictability that, you know, I know I'm going to be making at least as much as long as I do what I'm supposed to. And then you can work more or you know, work harder slash smarter, whatever, and make more money. So that, that's always a benefit in, in that situation. Now, uh, the final one is private equity or also known as PE. Uh, private equity firms are investment companies that invest in different things. Private equity can own restaurants, they can own um, you know, businesses, and they like, currently they're very interested in buying into medical practices to help create profit. Their goal is to grow the practice, ultimately, and then eventually they want to sell it. So, you know, obviously, as with any business, some are more successful than others. But their job is to grow the profits of a practice and, and then just basically flip it to another private equity firm or even a health plan. Um, many private equities have sold different medical practices to Optum Healthcare or even to United Healthcare. So insurance companies can buy them. Hospital systems on local areas uh, can buy them. National systems like Tenet or... Um, uh, common spirit, etc., are sometimes by practices as well. So um, their goal is to, as an investment firm, is to buy a business, as I mentioned, grow it, but then also get those profits for their investors. Um, PE firms will also own in your practice a medical service organization. That's how. What that's basically what manages your practice and will provide shares to the physicians who are parts of it. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of pros and cons with both, um, with, with this. I mean, the major, and again, there's a lot of assumptions here, but in the pros that these practices are well-funded, uh, generally they have good insurance contracts, and that's something that's going to be important if you decide to go to the private side because a new private practice may not have a good um insurance contract and as you grow your practice and as you become more successful your insurance plans may become better or your insurance reimbursement get better but anyway so I'm digressing and I can get into that a little bit later but for private equity they're generally going to have a better ability to get you a contract not all are successful in that uh, but some are they have enough money that they can withstand regulations and changes that might come from Medicare or CMS or things like that. And they are supposed to consolidate things to have a low overhead and a low cost. Not everyone's successful, once again. And then the other pro is that if you're bought into a private equity, you usually will have shares in that company and then you can make some money if they flip to another organization. A lot of assumptions there. The uh, cons that the, sometimes when you have these MSOs and these private equities, you have to pay fees to them, management fees and things like that. That can really cut into profits. Uh, business decisions sometimes, unfortunately, will have an impact on how you clinically practice medicine. They may say, we don't have um, any uh, interest in telling you how to practice, but as time goes on, 
you know, maybe if you like to do a certain procedure that's quite costly and doesn't generate a profit, they may encourage you not to do that. So it is something that you have to be careful of. Um, there's a minimal uh, control as a physician of when the next sale is going to be. You may not be able to get one or you may not be able to get out of it because they, they haven't been able to sell for a while. And then non-competes. Now, most states don't recognize non-competes, and there's some uh, trade language or some language coming out through the current administration about uh, non-competes that's going to be really important. But oftentimes, uh, you know, these private equity companies will put a pretty restrictive uh, non-compete into your uh, contract, and it'll be the burden will be on you if you decide to leave on fighting that legal battle. Um, as a therapeutic endoscopist, a private equity may not be the best option. The reason being is, as I've said time and time again, they want the business to be profitable. Well, what makes most private practices profitable in 2023 is uh, screening colonoscopies. So you may be encouraged to do less hospital work and more ASC work. And unless you've listened to my other podcast and gotten an EUS in the ASC, shameless plug, um, that may be something that you have to uh, come to terms with. So you have to be very careful in these situations. So whatever you choose, though, uh, you, you're going to have a contract, and you need to get that contract reviewed by a lawyer. What I have seen from my friends who are looking for jobs or have looked for jobs is that hospital-employed hospital practices generally won't change anything because they've been through the ringer with legal so many times that... Their contract is what it is, but um, definitely get it. I, I, I'm a big proponent of paying a little extra money and getting a lawyer to look at it, but a lot of program directors, a lot of people who have done this for years are always willing to help young fellows and, and young new graduates about looking at these contracts, and they know some of the basic things. So, you, you know, if you have somebody you trust really well in, in your program or in your mentoring, uh, in your cachet of mentors, um then show it to them as well. But get someone to look at it. Again, ideally, I think a, a lawyer should look at it, but if you have somebody who knows what they're doing with that, it's, it's really helpful. Um, avoid handshake agreements. You know, someone you know, joining a private practice said, don't worry, we'll make you a partner in two years. Now, again, the partnership thing, that, that's probably a bad example because partnership, they may not be able to put that in a contract, especially with ASCs. But, you know, someone says, trust me, we'll take care of you. Yeah, you know, you, what, if they don't write it down, they don't have to do it. So definitely uh, uh, stay away from as many handshake agreements as possible, although you, you know, there are some that you'll have to live with. Um, so that's kind of everything in a nutshell on how I would approach a job search. Um, hopefully uh, some of the information I've given in this podcast will be helpful to those who uh, are looking for jobs and, um, you know, my contact information is in the podcast or in the description, so please feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. I'm, a, I'm very accessible on Twitter at SuchDaveMD and on LinkedIn under my name, Munkavala, SuchDaveMD. Um, and so please feel free to reach out. Um, there is no question that's stupid. I've, I've, you know, I only look for one job. I've been the same job for 13 years. Um, so <clears throat> I think it's... Uh, I can at least give some advice on the private equity side as well as the uh, private practice side. And then my exposure to academics has been through friends of mine and happy to uh, help with that or hospital-employed things as well. Also, as I always like to end every podcast with, is uh, just a public services uh, uh, announcement for 
Um, any of those of you who are struggling with mental health uh, burdens or stresses, you know, being a physician in the United States is very stressful. And before you do anything that could be permanent or harmful, uh, seek some help. And join all your GI societies that you want to support, and uh, they have such good resources. A lot of this information is easily available in fellows courses, so please look into that as well. And thank you, and hopefully my next episode won't be so far away, and uh, I look forward to communicating with you all in the future.